Welcome back to the Gems of History podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Shop, and I got two other fellas with me here. Say say what's up, guys. What's up, guys? <laughs> what's up? <laughs> me and my sister, to this day, still answer every single phone call and every time we see each other saying that. Wow. <laughs> so that's a really Or funny. that or the classic yellow. Oh, God, yeah. That's Evan Roosh, and of course, oh. we have Mark Steinbrenner, too. He's a little sleepy guy. I'm sleepy. I am cold. I am here. <laughs> <laughs> Three negative things. No, no. <laughs> what were we saying before? Why was what, it? Why? What, what were we just saying? Never mind. <laughs> I'm also tired, sleepy, cold, and my puppy is sassy. So hey, yeah, that's Evan Roosh, aka the man who cuts off love at 22 years old. <laughs> 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 yeah <laughs> Jacob what do you got that's interesting how's your week been uh, it's been okay uh, the first international rocket league tournament in two years started today so I've been watching that and the team that I usually root for got swept in three games oh, so that was... find a new team <laughs> <laughs> hey you know they've been a struggle to watch the past year and a half uh, and I thought maybe today would be their like resurgence yeah but it wasn't why did it take two years for the next one to happen? Because of COVID. Yeah, Cause but like, it's a video game. Yeah, they? but they have like in person, like international tournaments, because you can't really play cross uh, region because someone will have like really bad connection on one side Aww. versus the other, depending on like where it's centered out of. They couldn't like socially distance them in the same building. They thought about doing that, like the other esports were doing, but the other esports were having like a ton of like complications trying to do that and like keeping oh. everyone separate and then also trying to let them practice as a team and stuff so they're gotcha. like we'll just skip it this year and then wait until next year and come back and do it right so all right, all right. can you imagine losing like thousands of dollars just because of like internet lag you just yeah. hear like one of them mom get off the internet yeah because i think they said that the prize pool for this tournament's like three hundred thousand dollars between like first second and third place so there's a decent amount of money on the line but yeah, it's in Sweden, so they start the games like three hours before they usually would. So I was like trying to keep it on my phone at work and yeah. also try and be productive. <laughs> so it was an interesting day. But yeah, yeah. I think there's just a lot of that going on because, yeah. you know, Halo Infinite's campaign dropped today and it took all of my energy to not just go come down here in the basement and just start playing at 1201. <laughs> I would have recommended that you did, but... You know, yeah. got to do adult things sometimes. I know, I pay bills. <laughs> what about you, Mark? Anything interesting on your end? I know you got finals coming up. That's super fun. Yeah, lots of fun stuff going on in my life. He basically just summed it up for me right there. Uh, other than that, uh, no fun classroom tales. No, nobody talks. Did you have to? <laughs> Everyone's like, I'm not used to being in Honestly, class I've, anymore. There are a few things more antisocial than like college kids right now. I feel like they got their mask up. They're not talking to anybody. If you went up, I'm pretty sure someone would scream. Like if I went up and was like, "Hey, how are you?" They'd be like, "Assault!" <laughs> Especially now because you're like so close to the end of the semester. Oh, I know, dude. Half the people I feel like don't even show up anymore. Right. I definitely remember that about college, especially like the morning classes, like. 
no one say anything. Yeah. yeah. Did you have to do like an icebreaker at the beginning of the semester? Some do, some don't. I really don't enjoy those. Uh, <laughs> I, don't I mean, think anyone does. Once you're an adult, it just feels kind of overrated. Like if I really want to go and connect with somebody, I have no problems approaching them and just being like, "Hey, this is I'm Mark. What's up?" <laughs> Whereas I don't need the teacher to be like. Okay, so uh, where do you like to eat? And I'm like McDonald's. Dang it! Now everything's a loser. You know? No, don't put you me on the spot. You hide the bag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mark's crumbs con- all over my mouth. <laughs> yeah. Actively eating fries. Oh my gosh! So I yeah. never understood the whole one fun fact about you. It's like, is this really gonna get any f- more conversation started than if I would have just said nothing? It's always good in a big college class too, where like somebody takes it too far and makes it like really personal. Like, oh, tell us a f- like a fact about you. I'm like, well, my parents are getting divorced next week. <laughs> I was oh. just gonna. It's like, oh my gosh, dude. Like, what do you? Yeah, yeah. So I'm really looking for like, you know, resources like around campus, and I'm just, you know, it's like, oh gosh, like, uh, I like to fish. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so yep that's about it <laughs> that is just like the most relatable thing like it's there's always one that's just tells you some like either drastic story or just like super sad spats. and then you gotta like parse out whether they're just a person that does that for everyone and just overshares all the time or if they're a person that's just like i need someone to look at me with a little bit of attention in their eyes yeah like, right it is also well it is kind of funny to watch the first week. Obviously, it all drops off after that. But the first week, the all the girls are, like, trying their hardest because there's a lot. I mean, it's college. There's a lot of attractive women. So they are kind of, like, trying to outclass the other yeah. ones. So they're, like, they're looking, like, tens everywhere. By week three, everyone's back to, like, their seven stage. Yeah, yeah. and then it goes slowly to, like, sweatpants yeah. and oh, no yeah. makeup. And then it's, like, like no, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty rough. Whereas, you know, most of the guys are coming in, you know, haven't showered in two days. They got a cap on. It's yeah. pretty bad it's pretty bad yeah in college i stayed heavy at two (laughs) (laughs) get me through the day and then i'll go out later (laughs) it's called consistency oh even going up still at two (laughs) (laughs) that is hilarious (laughs) you know who wasn't at two a certain uh sultan that is sultan true like your french fries you're sultan them no you no well (laughs) Yeah, that was a bad joke. Yeah. <laughs> I just love these fries. Speaking of the opposite of McDonald's, salads. So that's <laughs> what we're going to be talking about today. Oh no, guy named Salad Din. Salad Din. We're actually just going to review Salad. that YouTube. We're talking about Salad <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I brought this topic up when we were just discussing potential themes for today, just because this. Uh, so, uh, like Jacob mentioned, his name is Salad Din. Um, his full name was Salah al-Din Yusuf ibn Ayyub, uh, which translates to Righteousness of the Faith, Joseph, son of Job. And I brought it up because like, he is an extremely interesting figure in history. Um, we're going to be talking a lot about the Crusades today and just kind of what he did. And basically, if you want to call it liberating uh, the Middle East uh, from Crusaders in after the second crusade as well as holding off the advances of the third crusade and just talking about the kind of different contrasts and ruling that he had to uh the crusaders who took over initially um super interesting extremely interesting guy 
He also uh, kind of liberated the Middle East from themselves because they were just fighting each other for years. Right, so. yeah. It was essentially a lot of different dynasties popped up, uh, ranging from the Seljuk Turks uh, to the like old Persian Empire and a lot of different other factions. And he kind of brought everyone under one group. Um, very inspirational guy. I mean, you'll definitely see, uh, I won't spoil it, but uh, just what he did at the end of his life as well, just a lot of, I guess you can even say, philanthrop- philanthropic work. Today's just rough. Philanthropic <laughs> work. Um, just giving Lava's money away. Gesundheit. Yeah. <laughs> I went to college. I mean, <laughs> I anytime words. you can get the Crusaders to say that they respect you as a general and a king, and you're on the other side of the battle, right. it's pretty good. pretty good job you did. Yeah, yeah for example, Richard the Lionheart, uh, kind of most famous for the tales of just the old Robin Hood tales. Um, him and Saladin had great respect for each other. And it was very cool, especially just, you know, with Europeans being the way they were, uh, did not have much love for their enemies uh, during this time. So he garnered a lot of respect and he's even still today regarded as a legendary Muslim hero. Um, like we talked about before, he conquered most of Syria uh, Egypt, parts of Africa, the uh, Palestine, Israel as well, um, drove out the Crusaders and fended them off when they tried to reinvade because they're like, no, 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 that's our land. Um, this land is my land. This he actually land wrote that is song. My land. He actually, <laughs> <laughs> except it was always my land. Yeah, <laughs> there was no your. But should we so, should we get into it? Yeah, let's get into it. So his early life. Uh, Saladin was born to a Kurdish family. Let me back up and say my sources, actually, because I always, always, always forget. So my sources were thoughtco.com, militaryhistory.fandom.com, and, excuse me, sorry, uh, britannica.com. And then I use history.com, biographics, a podcast called History of the Crusades, which goes pretty in-depth on different aspects of the Crusades. They do, like... I think 12 parts on the third crusade. So each of them are a half hour. Uh, and then a website called airnow.net, I think is how you pronounce it. But yeah, that's where I got most of my stuff from. So very cool. Take it away. Take it away. Take it away. Take it away now. Uh. <laughs> yes. So as I was saying before, uh, Saladin was born to a Kurdish family of Armenian descent. And was born in a town called Tikrit, Iraq. His father, Nam Adin Ayub, was the castellan of Tikrit and was under the Seljuk administrator Bayrouz. Uh, we do not have record of his mother's identity. I could barely find his father's name in a lot of the sources. So That is true. I guess that just is something that may have just been lost in time. Yeah, but... some sources just called him Ayub. So. Right, right, right. But... At the time of his birth, of Saladin's birth, uh, his, what a lot of historians consider a very hot-blooded man, his uncle, Shirku, killed the commander of the castle guard over a woman, and Bayrouz uh, banished the entire family from the city in disgrace. And Saladin's name actually comes from the prophet Joseph, who was considered an unlucky figure, uh, and from the Bible, uh whose half-brothers actually sold him into enslavement. So that's kind of where the his name came from. He was it's just kind of a little play on words, like, oh, this guy, kind of pretty unlucky. But... He'd have a sick cloak, though. 
So many colors. Dude, that dude was absolute drip. When I think about that, absolute drip, <laughs> he invented I, the word. Drip. He invented drip. When I think about that cloak, I, I definitely think about um, Kramer and Seinfeld. Oh, we're just walking down the street. Yeah, with the as pimp the pimp. Game. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this guy kind of had it set up to be a warlord, though, because his father was a mercenary and his uncle was just like beheading people left and right. So. Oh yeah, even over a woman. I mean. Can't imagine who that was, but they she say must all, have been a ten. All's fair in love and war. That's true. That is you what could they say, say that he lost his head over her. But um, the yeah, <laughs> someone else lost their head though. I thought. D- yeah, the castle guard. <laughs> oh, what now we're picky on this. I thought it was good <laughs> I gave you the button <laughs> uh, after their expulsion from Tikrit the family moved to the Silk Road trading city of Mosul uh, there Saladin's father and Sherku served Imad Adin Zangi the famous anti-crusader ruler and was actually and who was actually the founder of the Zangid dynasty later Saladin would spend his adolescence in Damascus, Syria, which was one of the greatest cities of the Islamic world at the time. And the boy was, or excuse me, Saladin, growing up, was physically slight, studious, and quiet. So diving into his early military career, after he graduated a military training academy, the then 26-year-old Saladin joined his uncle, Sherku, on a campaign to restore Fatimid power in Egypt in 1163. So basically, they lost Egypt, or the overarching uh, dynasty lost Egypt, and they were going to take it back. They were successful in their efforts and put back into place Shawar, the Fatimid ruler, but Shawar immediately told them to leave the area. So he's like, well, thank you for this city and this country, but uh, bounce. And goodbye. Yeah. Okay, bye. You are the weakest link. <laughs> Shiku and Saladin refused, and as a result, Shawar allied himself with Crusaders. Saladin and Shiku were successful in defeating uh, the combined armies of the Crusaders and of the armies of Shawar, and eventually agreed to a peace treaty, so Shiku and Saladin would leave Egypt, and unfortunately, this... Peace treaty only lasted two years. Yeah, and they like just helped them fend off the the Latin Christians three times. Right. It's like, okay, you guys did real good work. Now, you guys can like go do good work other places. Yeah, don't let the door hit you on the way out. But hey, there's there, there's a huge power struggle going on. It was like a three way power struggle for the most part. So there's a lot going on up up top, and then mm-hmm. everyone was just like. I'm gonna take what I can get, and you can suck. You can suck it. <laughs> that was very PG. <laughs> <laughs> and you can suck it. It. <laughs> so, like Jacob mentioned, uh, there were several different factions kind of vying for control, uh, specifically over Egypt. Uh, so, years of war followed until Saladin eventually captured Shawar, and then Sherku, again, that's Saladin's uncle, proceeded to execute him and. Sherku was then appointed vizier of Egypt. Just beheading people left and right. I'm not going to make another losing his head joke because it did not <laughs> land time number one. I bet his head landed, though. 
Probably in like a nice basket. That'd be nice. Nice and clean. Every mm-hmm. time Evan like makes the name Shiku or whatever, I always say it's actually Piku. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, Shirku would die a short time later after a feast. And there's no, I didn't find any like confirmation on the exact way he died from the feast, but apparently he was going hard. It's, I think it was some, some of my sources said he died of indigestion. Oh, really? Yeah, because he <laughs> ate too much. Like, Honestly, if you're going to go yeah, out. Yeah, I was going to say, it's kind of a great, well, actually, that would have. I think it was like two months after they took over and they had a huge feast. And then he just like kept like living the super luxurious lifestyle and just mm-hmm. overdid it, I guess. So very curious to know like what was the food that did him in like what was the last bite where his body was like bro what what what's a big one over there like curry is curry big in the middle east he's just eating a ton of dude curry might do you in now spiced curry right (laughs) (laughs) honestly i could not tell you we should do fine the next thing on our tiktok will just be us baking different foods i'm down from history that actually sounds like a. that sounds amazing wait cut cut this that's an amazing (laughs) idea cut this cut this cut this (laughs) As if no one's done this before. <laughs> there's an there's an entire YouTube channel called Tasting History that does exactly this. Oh, <laughs> uh, every single time I think I have an original idea, whether it's like literally anything, and I Google it, it's like, oh yeah, someone definitely already had oh, that yeah. idea. But uh, this whole time, even though they took over as vizier of Egypt, they're technically still under the rule of Nur al-Din, who yes. was back home in Syria. He, they were kind of just fighting for him and taking control in his place as like a consulate. So, mm-hmm. so after Shirku died, apparently of indigestion, just pounding whatever he could find, uh, Saladin <laughs> then succeeded his uncle as vizier and actually eventually married... His aunt. <laughs> Kept in the family. So Saladin spent the first two years of his rule in Egypt, basically just consolidating his control over Egypt. And after uncovering an assassination plot against him, which we'll find is kind of a very recurring theme in this yeah. man's life, he almost got got several times. Oh, yeah. He was a very lucky man, as well yeah. as being a very smart man at some points. So. Mm-hmm. But uh, this first assassination attempt was by the African units in his in his uh, army, and so he dismissed close to fifty thousand troops, which I thought was an interesting thing to point out because that's an incredible number for at the time. I mean, that's a huge number of troops for someone that is just trying to establish themselves as um, the ruler in the area, and instead he pretty much just relied on his Syrian soldiers as well as brought members of his family into his government. Yeah, that was a big point in like how he started doing so well, is that he surrounded himself with basically a council of his family members so that they could help advise him, because he'd never ruled anything before, so he really needed a lot of help saying, what should I do in certain situations? I mean, he had military training, but that's not enough to rule an entire Egyptian people, so... Right, like I'm sure there was just so much like logistically that he had to learn after he took over, and he even gave his dad a call, like "Dad, help." It's actually cool that it worked out that way, though, because if you look throughout history, a lot of times families like backstab each other. Oh, hundred like, percent. We're like, oh, I'll take the throne now, you know, like next in line kind yeah. of stuff. <laughs> Did he actually marry his aunt? Because I thought he married the like widow of Nur yeah. al-Din. Yeah, that's what I read too. Oh, I could have, 
I could have had that wrong. It was, I think it was his widow that he married because then he had a connection to the royal family of the Syrian ruler as well as her family was like like higher up governing family in a different like city in Syria. So that's how he got like royal connections or like pretty much it was a marriage to benefit him. Okay. Yeah. I must've just gotten my sources crossed. So now that you say that, I do remember seeing that as well. Yeah, it was, it was definitely like, uh, a political marriage, mm-hmm. but apparently they ended up like really digging each other. So, so let me backtrack. He did not marry his aunt. <laughs> really bringing my a game. <laughs> <laughs> so that one is on me. So after he consolidated all of his power in Egypt, uh, this was the time that he his first attack on the Crusader Kingdom of Jerusalem. Uh, so he got all of his pals and his troops and went marching into the Holy Land. He destroyed the city of Gaza and captured the Crusader Castle at Eilat, as well as the key town of Isla in 1170. Then in 1171, he marched on the famous castle city of Karak, where he was supposed to join Nur al-Din in attacking the strategic Crusader fortress, but withdrew when his father passed away back in Cairo. Now, this was the first, I guess, offense that he did to Nur al-Din. Uh, Nur al-Din was furious and rightfully suspected that Saladin's, or excuse me, Saladin's loyalty to him was starting to be a little bit in question. Yeah, because this is a big retreat because they had him on their heels. And if he would have made a dis- like a decision to go forward, they would have been able to pretty much take this stronghold that had been a thorn in their side for a while. So the fact that he retreated was kind of a a big misstep on his part. But, I mean, you got to think this is his first real time leading a, an army in battle. So. Mm-hmm. so Saladin abolished the Fatimid Caliphate and took power over Egypt in his own name, so essentially breaking off from Nur al-Din at this time. And this was the start of the Ayyubid dynasty in 1171. He also reimposed Sunni religious worship instead of the Fatimid-style Shiism. In 1173 and 74, uh, Saladin pushed his borders west into what is now Libya, and southeast as far as Yemen. So he's really expanding his territory along the coasts especially. And this is also a time where he's investing in naval ships as well, just to also secure those seas and those trade routes. And this whole time, Nur al-Din's like, what the hell are you (laughs) doing, dude? That's my shit. (laughs) Right. And this is also like he stopped doing payments to Nur al-Din, who, like we mentioned, was kind of the overarching ruler. And apparently Nur al-Din kept on trying to summon... Saladin to Damascus to, I guess you could say, have a talk, but there's not a chance that Saladin would have made it out of there. Yeah, the guy in the biographics video is like, this is one of the points about Saladin is that he was a big procrastinator and he just didn't go. And then eventually it paid off. You're right. But he was like getting a ton of financial support now that he was running Egypt because Egypt was a huge agricultural like center. So they had plenty of funding that he could use to help him build his army and like fight to rule more of these areas. So he really got like the best area that he could to start his expansion. So it's like an age of empires when you like your settlement randomly starts right next to the gold mines. Oh dude, it's so nice. That was literally just something for me and Mark. Like no one else <laughs> no is one like, else Oh yeah, I like, totally remember that. Yeah. 
always got pissed when there was a wolf in my village to start the game. <laughs> sometimes you get a wolf, sometimes you get cold. He is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> so, obviously frustrated, Nur al-Din then decided to invade Egypt to install a more loyal uh, underling as vizier. But he's Come on, I'm doing good out here. <laughs> <laughs> I finally get some coin. Uh, but Nur al-Din suddenly died in 1174 before he could launch the campaign into Egypt. Another stroke of luck for Saladin. Yeah, like you mentioned, a very lucky man um, just with the assassination attempts as well as this. I mean, would have made life a lot more difficult if he just had the whole of that entire dynasty of Nur al-Din coming at him yeah. at this time in history. He just seems very, like, he was always just vibing. Like, I feel like I can see one of his advisors running into the room being like, you're not going to believe this. The, this dude just keeled over and be like, no crap. <laughs> <laughs> so you're telling me he just died like that? Yeah. That's crazy. That's crazy. Poor guy. <laughs> Poor guy. And just continued on with his day. Like, it wasn't, yeah. like, world-breaking news. Yeah, right. But from, like, everything I heard about the assassination attempts, his bodyguards must have just been, like, elite. Because yeah. there was one time where a bunch of assassins came and were, like, trying to sneak into his camp. And one of the bodyguards saw them. And so the bodyguards just killed them all immediately. Mm -hmm. And then the second time, one of them got through the side of the tent. And the only reason that he Saladin didn't die is because he was wearing chainmail underneath like all of his clothing. So the guy tried to stab him in the head, but the point couldn't get through the chainmail. So it just like nicked him. And then he tried to go for Saladin's neck. And he had like a high collar on with chainmail underneath and a thick fabric. So it didn't get him there either. And then the bodyguards had enough time to get in and take out the guys attacking. But he was so like just these small strokes of luck that helped him out so much. I can't imagine just strolling through the garden one day and then someone comes at you with a knife. Yeah. So I think I just had this chainmail on. And apparently the only, like, there is so many different stories on why the assassins just never kept coming for him. And some of them say that he went to their stronghold and, like, confronted them and they're like, okay, we'll back off. But one of them was just like he was camping outside the stronghold and there was this wise man on the hill that told him, like, oh, you better be careful. And then he woke up in the morning to a note saying, leave our area. And then he just never had any contact with them again. But none of them ever say like a benefit for the assassins to stop. It's pretty much just something happened and they stopped. But yeah. So I did see in my notes, I did have a little bit on that. And fun fact, that's actually like the assassins that were based on the assassins Creed, or excuse me, the assassins Creed video game franchise is actually based on these assassins. No, I'm pretty um, sure they were based on the Assassin's Creed video games. Yeah, right. Just <laughs> retrospect. But uh, the reason why they kind of stopped, like Saladin did uh, try to take over their fortifications or just try to uh, lay siege to them, and then that knife incident happened. And then he very quickly made peace with them and like got into a treaty with them Okay. Uh, so that they wouldn't also then join the Crusaders, who he was about to take on. Gotcha. But that's very interesting. And just while we're, since we're talking about the assassins, I've just found this fascinating in my research. Uh, they would actually like carefully study the languages and cultures of the targets. And an operative would infiltrate the court or inner circle of the intended victim, like sometimes serving for years as an advisor or servant or something like that. And then at the opportune moment, the assassin would then stab or kill 
the sultan, vizier, or whoever that they were targeting. I'm just imagining this as like the old timey version of the 21 Jump Street scene where the, <laughs> the two DA DA guys have to like take off their disguises because the other two guys blow their cover. Right. And it's just like, come on, this was a four year operation. Right. <laughs> I got a tattoo on my genitals for this. Oh no, I was just joking about that. <laughs> Okay, so Nur al-Din just passed away suddenly. Uh, Saladin definitely capitalized on this death and immediately marched to Damascus and effectively took control of Syria, just like that. The Arab and Kurdish citizens of Syria reportedly welcomed him joyfully into their cities, so his reputation for just being a gracious and good ruler honestly helped him a lot with these different territories that he took over, just because a lot of times he would take over and just let everyone that was there vibe on their own. Yeah, and <clears throat> the people liked him, but apparently a lot of the higher-ups in like the military, especially the former military, just did not like him at all because mm-hmm. they saw him as a rich kid who got plot- like plopped into a scenario by a stroke of fate, and he didn't really do anything to earn the position that he was in. So they just said, well, we can take him and depose him. It's not going to be a big deal, but... Right, that was specifically with the ruler of Aleppo. Uh, he's actually the one that like that uh, allied with the assassins that we just talked about, and that's where all the different stories of like the thirteen assassins broke into Saladin's camp, uh, the dagger incident, and all that stuff. So that's kind of where that happened almost immediately after uh, Saladin took over Damascus and took over control of Syria. So just kind of very, very fascinating time in his life. He was a busy guy during this time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like all through eleven, the 1170s, he was constantly moving, uh, doing different wars, establishing a lot of different uh, people to rule over those lands. Just a very busy man. But fast forwarding, because we did talk about the assassins already. Uh, fast forwarding to 1177. The Crusaders actually broke their truce that they had with Saladin and started raiding towards Damascus. So basically picking off a lot of, uh, um, not missionaries, um, merchants, merchants, thank gosh today, uh, picking off a lot of different merchants, both, uh, by land and even on the Dead Sea, uh, raiding their ports, um, taking a lot of different stuff, also attacking pilgrims. So, for example, uh, the holy city of Mecca was not directly in Palestine, but uh, Islamic pilgrims would travel these routes, and they were constantly getting attacked by different crusader raiders. And now Saladin, who was in Cairo at the time, took 26,000 troops into Palestine. Uh, he took the city of Ascalon and got as far as the gates of Jerusalem in November. On November 25th, the Crusaders, who were under the rule of the, who were under the rule of King Baldwin IV of Jerusalem, who ironically had leprosy his entire life, but still found a way to. I think he only, do this. he only lived to be like 13 or 14. Yeah, he was also a child. Yeah, because he <laughs> took over when he was like nine. Right, right, right. That was kind of the main one of the main themes with the crusader states like the organization in the hierarchy was never really great well, and uh, and this guy was ruling aleppo like the king baldwin was the new ruler of aleppo so like mm-hmm. all of these people that are in positions of power where saladin is trying to go just keep di- like the rulers that are there keep dying 
Yeah. So now he's got all of these chaotic governments that are trying to like cover their asses that he can just come in and sweep through. So Saladin and his troops are, at this point, currently sieging Jerusalem uh, for the first time. But Saladin kind of made the mistake of constantly sending out his troops, like a, mass, a vast majority of his troops, to raid on the outskirts, uh, just trying to cut off different supply lines and what have you. That a European force of just 375 knights, so fully armored knights, did a desperate charge and were actually able to rout and break the siege of Jerusalem. And Saladin actually narrowly escaped this, and he rode a camel all the way back to Egypt. So Those Templars, they're something. Yeah, they were very insane. Yeah. They That's like strong, a whole other episode we could get into. They strong and insane. <laughs> right, yeah. As Quite we'll literally see, insane. As we'll see later, they make some insane decisions. Yeah, that's that's for sure. Um, despite this, uh, what's considered an embarrassing retreat, uh, riding a camel like 100 plus miles, uh, Saladin then attacked the crusader city of Homs in the spring of 1178. His army then captured Hama and frustrated Saladin ordered the beheading of the European knights captured there. The following spring, King Baldwin then launched what he thought was going to be a surprise retaliatory attack on Syria. But Saladin knew he was coming, and the Crusaders soundly thrashed them, or excuse me, the Crusaders were soundly thrashed by Saladin's forces in the ensuing battle. A few months later, Saladin then took the Knights Templar fortress of Chastelet, capturing many famous knights, and then by the spring of 1180, uh, Saladin was in position to launch another serious attack on the kingdom of Jerusalem. And then King Baldwin then just sued for peace. It's so funny because every time we talk about the Templars, I just think of the knight from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Because that's <laughs> what they look like, the armor style that they wore, except it was white. Mm -hmm. So I just keep imagining that guy like trying to defend Jerusalem. And he's just like, you can't kill me. <laughs> so after the temporary truce and i call it temporary because of course it doesn't last long and also the crusaders did not really honor this truce pretty much at all they uh kept up with their raiding on the islamic pilgrims as well as the different uh merchant channels um in may of level 82 uh, saladin then took half the egyptian army and left egypt for the last time his truce with the then Zengid dynasty, who was currently ruling over Mesopotamia, expired in the September of that year. And Saladin, instead of renewing this treaty, kind of just resolved to seize the region. He was promptly invited to just take sovereignty over that area, and it made it a lot easier. So again, I bring that up just because it's one of those things he, his reputation preceded him. Yeah, and I think at this point, people saw how well it was going with a united Muslim front. Mm -hmm. And so they were like, okay, so we can see that you're doing good work by getting everyone under the same banner. So I think it will be a good thing if we just joined you, since we don't really want to have to fight you, because we know that you're already taken over by force in other areas, mm -hmm. so... But most of the time, he did take over diplomatically, and he only had to use his he only used his army if he really had to. So right, he always tried to find a peaceful solution that didn't have a lot of bloodshed. And when he took over new areas uh, such as Mesopotamia, he actually repealed all the taxes in the newly conquered areas. So that made him even more popular with the local residents. 
And like you mentioned, just one of his key things was using diplomatic uh, opportunities to capture areas. Uh, when he finally had the chance to capture Aleppo, which we talked about before, uh, he just made a deal with the governor there saying, I'll allow you to leave, but and you can take everything that you can carry as you leave the city. And he'll also pay you for what was left behind. So basically just finding a different way to avoid bloodshed. He was very much a believer in, I don't want to destroy the thing that I'm going to take over. Right, right. That's very true. He also let people go that, like, even very sane people would have been like, I got to kill this person. Exactly. Or, like, these yeah. people. Mm-hmm. He then would target uh, Mosul, which, if you remember before, was his birth city. He was unable to completely capture it, but eventually just made peace with the city's defense forces. Then he's like, we got to get these crusaders out of here. So he decided that it was time to take the kingdom of Jerusalem. And in September 1182, he marched back into the Christian-held lands across the River Jordan, picking off a small number of knights along the Nablus Road. The Crusaders mustered their largest army ever, but it was still smaller than Saladin's. So they basically just harassed the Muslim army as it moved into the Holy Land. Finally, Reynald of Chatillon, who was historically... He was the one doing most of the raiding yeah, and the of killing of innocents. Kind of a dick. Very much so. He definitely goes on the... I was going to say he goes on the wall of dicks of history, but I, <laughs> I think we might need to rebrand that one. The wall of jerks, let's say that. That's better. Yeah. Next to the wall of dicks. Yes. <laughs> Ew. Uh, so he sparked open fighting when he threatened to attack the holy cities of Medina and Mecca which to uh, Islam, they're very holy cities, and they took, Saladin especially took extreme offense to this. So he responded by besieging Reynald's castles in Karak. Uh, Reynald retaliated by attacking pilgrims even more who were making their pilgrimages, stealing their goods, and even, and this, this point is debated still to this day, he even kidnapped Saladin's sister who was part of one of these uh one of these pilgrimages or pilgrim groups who were just trying to go to mecca or medina uh despite all this going on uh, saladin was still making gains on his ultimate goal which was the capture of jerusalem and by july of 1187 most of that territory did become under his control the crusader kings and so this is post the leper king because he passed away. Peace. Uh, the, the Crusader kings decided to mount a last desperate attack to, dry, to try and drive Saladin from the Holy Land. So this is where we get the Battle of Hattin. So I think Jacob has a lot of great notes on this. Um, so I, I don't know if you want to yeah, sure. take over. So uh, around this time, there was a, a guy named... Raymond III, who was like a partial ruler of an area called Tripoli, and he was pretty upset with the new ruling king named King Guy because they pretty much skipped him in line for the throne after the leper king died because Raymond was his consul, and basically they said until, or for the next year or whatever, until his reign would have been up, then we're going to let you rule, and then 
we'll have Kingi and then his wife Sibylla take over. And so when they skipped him, he was like, I'm going to go make a treaty with Saladin. So Saladin and Raymond were now in a truce with each other, like allied. And at this time, Raymond owned part of the Christian-held lands, which included Galilee, which is where Raymond's wife was. And so Saladin was like, hey, can I send a recon group of my like soldiers through your land? And then that way I can scout it out and then see what's all going on. So Raymond agreed to this, but he said they have to leave before the sun comes up and they have to be out of the land by dark. And they can't harm anyone in the villages or towns, so they can't like pillage and raid or anything. So Saladin agreed, and he sent out a scouting party, which I think it was slave soldiers that he had. And one of the numbers that I saw for the amount of people he sent out was around 7,000. So this was a pretty large force of people that he sent to go scouting for whatever reason. But no, 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 they'll get out of there real quick. <laughs> yeah. 7,000 people. I thought it was going to be like seven people. I know, I know right? Surprisingly, they don't break the tr- the promise that he made, but... One dude's just like, I'm staying, dude. <laughs> they only came back with 6,999. <laughs> so Raymond sent a letter ahead of the, the recon party pretty much to alert the villages to just stay inside just to be safe. And this eventually re- reached the Templar castle in La Fay, and the Grand Masters of one of the forces who is called the Hospitallers, and then also the Templars, saw this note and set out to confront this scouting party. But they eventually found the horsemen, and they realized they were severely outnumbered because they only had 90 people. <laughs> and they were led by a man named Gerard of Rideford. And so there's a few accounts of what happens next. One account says that Grandmaster Gerard of the Templars insisted that their smaller party attack the Muslim Stouts and then they were soundly defeated. But that's kind of a questionable recount of it because apparently it was written by a lot of people who were enemies of Gerard of Ridefort. So they pretty much say it was probably an attempt to paint him in a negative light. But the more realistic scenario is probably that the Muslims just saw these guys and destroyed them because they had so many more people. Right. But either way, the scouts never damaged any of the villages, and they also returned before nightfall. So they kept their promise, and they got some good detail. We got 20 minutes to kill these <laughs> bastards. Let's go. I'm just picturing, like, the clock from uh, 24, like Jack just, like, Bauer. Yeah. in the yeah. background. You're right. But yeah, I was like, they did keep their promise, but they came back with the heads of knights on their spikes. So... <laughs> So after this, which is mainly caused by Raymond's allowance of the scouts going through the area, Raymond broke his treaty with Saladin and made peace with the new king of Jerusalem, King Guy. And since Guy needed all the help he could get against Saladin's growing army, he welcomed Raymond back in. And eventually, they grew the Latin Christian force that they had to about 12,000 men and 1,200 mounted knights, whereas Saladin had around 18,000 troops from various areas, including those slave troops that he had sent on his recon mission. And uh, this is kind of important because this is a huge pivotal point for this battle, is that King Guy, in his last-ditch effort, pretty much emptied out all of the cities and castles in the nearby areas like of their soldiers so that they could have a force to try and fight, which left them very vulnerable if they did lose this battle. So he's taken a big gamble here. So Saladin, knowing that he had a, a pretty large force that was coming up and knowing that King Yi was in a stronghold in the city of Sephoria, not Sephora, like the makeup place, hmm. 
Uh, Saladin decided to try and provoke them to come out of their stronghold by attacking a nearby town called Tiberius, where, which is where Raymond III's wife was staying. And he took it over after sieging the city, but nobody started coming. So after Raymond's wife, Ashiva, sent a letter telling Raymond and the, the king's forces how they were faring at the stronghold, King Guy arranged a war council meeting asking people whether the Keith they think the army should leave their stronghold in Sephoria or like stay there and wait for Saladin to move. And a ton of the men pretty much said, we got to go help Raymond's wife. Mm-hmm. Like she's trapped in the city. We can't have our citizens trapped in a city like this. But Raymond himself said that it would be a bad idea because he said that there would be no good way to make it to Tiberius in good shape since it was the middle of summer in the desert and there wasn't going to be a lot of water along the way to replenish the troops. So in part, he said, you are well aware that since the heat is searing and the number of people is large, they cannot survive half a day without an abundance of water. Furthermore, they cannot reach the enemy without suffering a, f- without suffering a shortage of water accompanied by the destruction of men and of beasts. So basically saying, we're not going to have enough stuff to get there unless we find a water like route with water. The local watering hole. Yeah. And so Saladin had... Uh, in preparation for this, there's basically two roads that led to where Saladin was. One of them was shorter and had water along the way. And you could basically get there in a day's march if you were quick about it. And the other road was like worse. Like it wasn't as good of a traveling road, but it had a big water source on it. So Saladin pretty much said, okay, we're going to send half the forces to that road because it's got a big water source. And then we're going to just destroy the water resources on the quicker road. So he was ready for this. But by the end of the council meeting, King Guy decided that they were going to stay in Sephoria. And after everyone left, the Grand Master of the Templars, Gerard Ridefort, <laughs> went back in to convince Guy that they should attack Tiberius to avoid leaving a stain on King Guy's honor, or King Guy's honor. So... That was all it took, and King Yu was like, all right, we're going to go march and take this city back. <laughs> it's like a very logical, thought-out argument by the one guy, and then the Knights Templar guy comes in and is like, no, no, That's why let's I, go. That's why these guys are crazy, because this guy's just like, there's one scenario where it's plausible that he could have told an army of 90 men to attack thousands, and then also come back, and then like a week later be like, no, 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 we got to go attack this city, even though we can't probably, probably can't make it there. He was on a hot streak, and I believe, I don't know if you're going to mention it, but one of his reasons for doing this was just saying, like, God would guide us, and they brought, like, a supposed true piece of the cross with them. Yeah, so that was their huge rallying piece was the true cross that they carried, mm-hmm. and that's going to be big because they're not going to have that too long. Nope. <laughs> but uh, a lot of the reason why he said that they should go attack is because a lot of the generals still didn't trust Raymond after he had just defected and then come back. So they were like, well, we don't trust his word, so we're going to try and convince King Guy to do it anyways. So like I said, Saladin had prepared pretty well for this, and the Latin Christians decided to go take the faster route, but quickly found that there was no water sources, and the soldiers, wearing all of their armor in the heat of summer, quickly decided, or quickly started getting very thirsty. Yeah. And so once Saladin had a scout go forward and tell him that, hey, they're coming. 
he decided to move all of his soldiers out of Tiberias where they were about five miles to a city called Hattin. And there's plenty of water and plenty of fields there. And this was on the end of that route that the Christians were coming on. So by nightfall, the Christians had reached the plateau above the city of Hattin where they expected water, but the spring was dried up. So all of these men, thirsty and crazed from marching all day in the heat, now found that they had no water and then looked down on the city below them and saw all of Saladin's forces. (laughs) Just the worst day. Yeah, literally the worst scenario that you could get into. So through the night, Saladin and his troops, like, moved silently in the night to surround the Christian army, all the while setting the dry brush shrubs that were surrounding them on fire, making the thirst of the Christians even worse. So by daybreak, they had entirely surrounded the Latin Christians, and the Latin Christians were like, oh, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) So a bunch of crazed, thirsty soldiers were making multiple attempts to break through the lines of Saladin's forces, but were always driven back or killed. And... To their credit, they put up a good fight for the situation that they were in. But the only people that managed to get out and flee were Raymond III and a man named Balian of Ibelin with their men, because basically they trampled forward over Christians, Turks, and even the True Cross to basically make a bridge of people that they could just take their horses over. And from one source that I saw... It said that Saladin's men saw Raymond's flag, and having no information on whether they're still in an ally, like allied with him, they just opened the line and let him through. So that's how they got out. But despite this small faction getting out, Saladin won the battle, took the True Cross, and the king of the battle, which was King Guy. So this is kind of a funny story. After they had won, Saladin invited King Guy and some of his uh, barons into his tent and offered King Guy, supposedly, a cup of ice water adorned with snow from a mountain as a sign that his life would be spared, which I don't know how you keep ice or snow from a mountain. <laughs> yeah, I saw that same story. Like, how was he keeping it cool? Did they have, like, better yetis that, like, back then? Yes. I don't get it. Just, like, an ice chest full of snow. That was someone's one job to keep this ice cold. <laughs> yeah, it's like, just... Go ahead, Mark. No, that's just so funny. When I was reading about it, they're like, what a reward. Like, hey, good job. You lost. Here's some ice sherbet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like scruffles his hair on his head. Yeah. I'm imagining Christian Bale like going up the mountain to get that flower. And it's just <laughs> yeah. this guy trying to get some snow. <laughs> <laughs> so he gave this to Guy. And when Guy attempted to give it to his baron, Reynald, who we mentioned earlier, Saladin became furious and exclaimed that the water was not for him. It was for Guy. And since Reynald had previously raided all the ports and supposedly, or perhaps captured Saladin's sister, Saladin offered him the deal that if he converted to Islam, he would be spared. And Reynald, as stubborn as he was, said, you should convert to Christianity to save your soul. And Saladin cut his head off. Yep. (laughs) So most of the high... Ranking prisoners were taken to Damascus, and the rest were sold into slavery, except for a small number that Saladin said, we can't keep these Templars and Hospitallers alive because they may pose a threat, and they're a bunch of mongrels. So he had all of them killed. And then this was pretty much how he set himself up to go and finally take over Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And just one other story from that interaction with uh, King Guy, Saladin, because... Guy honestly thought that he was next, like going to be beheaded. 
after um, Reynald. But Saladin said to him, and this is a quote, It is not the want of kings to kill kings, but that man transgressed all bounds, and therefore did I treat him thus. And this actually gained him a lot of credit uh, with people back in Europe when they heard the story, basically saying that he was a very chivalrous warrior and he didn't uh, just behead his enemies for no reason. This guy's all right then. <laughs> Yeah, especially since Guy, like, turns around and just like, all right, let's run this crusade back here in a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> like, what? Well, it actually wasn't him, though. It was the guys back home. I know, like, but he wins. Well, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he started it. Yeah. So. Oh, gosh. So after uh, this Battle of Hattin, uh Saladin then turned his focus on Jerusalem, like Jacob mentioned. Um, Jerusalem, eventually, on October 2nd, 1187, did surrender after a siege. Uh, it was a fun note. So Saladin, like he did try the usual bombardment with like siege weapons on the walls of Jerusalem. But what really worked was literally digging underneath the walls and like breaking the foundation of it. Yeah, because they had to do that at an earlier battle when it was yes, like one of yeah. his first battles. So mm -hmm. he's like, well, might as well try it again. Right, right. So, I mean, Credit to the defenders at Jerusalem. It literally took them ripping out the roots of the walls to to get in before yeah. they, I guess, quote unquote, lost the city. And I, I have some more details on that. So, like, along the way to Jerusalem, Saladin took over seven more cities in a couple of months. Mm -hmm. So he was on a roll. And then basically all of the refugees from these cities were going to Jerusalem. So there's just a ton of people all in this one area. But there were no fighters because, like I mentioned, all of the fighters had gone to fight in the Battle of Hattin. So Balian, who escaped the Battle of Hattin with Raymond, he returned back to Jerusalem because that's where his children and his wife were. And he showed up and he's like, there's no one here to lead. And there's only two knights in the city. That's all <laughs> that's left. So everyone's just like, you got to stay and lead us. And so he's like, all right, fine. So he knighted every boy over the age of 16, armed every able-bodied man, and sent parties out to collect all the food in the area before the Muslims got there. So yeah, like Evan said, they arrived and then sieged the city for nine days and eventually broke the wall down. But yeah, it was basically just kids and like whoever was a man <laughs> fighting to try and hold these people off. And to their credit, they held them off for nine days. So Yeah, can't imagine being a 16-year-old. Yeah. And being, oh, sick, I'm a knight. Well, now you have to go fight this army of 26,000. Yeah, just like begging this guy, what are we going to do? You're going to do something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so after he took Jerusalem, uh, Saladin protected the Christian civilians of the city, so none of them were harmed. He did demand a low ransom for each Christian. Those who could not afford to pay were also still allowed to leave the city uh, rather than be enslaved. However, the low-ranking Christian knights and foot soldiers were then sold into enslavement. Yeah, so it was, from what I saw, 10 coins for every man, 5 coins for every woman, and then 1 coin for every child up to the age of 7. And so Balian was like, okay, I'll agree to that, but there's a ton of poor people here. So he paid 30000 out of the public funding that he had collected for... 7,000 of the poorest people to leave the city. So, as we mentioned earlier, Saladin was very much a proponent of not destroying the places you're taking over. Right. But, this is... Oh, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say it was funny because 
when they got into Jerusalem, a lot of the men wanted to ransack and destroy the city because that's what the Christians had done when they took it over in 1099. Mm-hmm. So he was like, the only way that we're not going to destroy the city is if you unconditionally surrender. Otherwise, we're going to kill everybody. And Balian was like, counterpoint, we're going to destroy the city unless you let us leave. Yeah. So he's like, okay, you can just pay me money and then right. leave. Honestly, I love that negotiation. Yeah. Considering like the reason why Jerusalem was so sacred is just you can't well, destroy and, it. And it was just a good place to... like hang out yeah well there's a lot of merchant (laughs) areas and like it was a very good place for commerce so Mm -hmm. why destroy it exactly and like you mentioned uh this is completely different approach than the christians took so took over jerusalem so when they took it over 88 years earlier they slaughtered everyone in the city uh both muslim and jewish inhabitants killed absolutely everyone and ramon of aguilares who was one of the leaders of that crusade the first crusade boasted and this is a quote in the temple and the porch of solomon men rode in blood up to their knees and bridle reins so just saying like yeah we killed everyone yeah in there uh just a quote from Balian that i had written down for when he was trying to uh, counter the argument for unconditional surrender he said that all of the people there would quote Slay our sons and our daughters. We shall burn the city and overthrow the temple and all the sanctuaries, which are also your sanctuaries. Right. So he's basically just saying, bring it yeah. <laughs> or try me. Uh, love the negotiation tactic. I'll have to like, keep that one in the back pocket. So after he conquered Jerusalem, Saladin also invited Jewish people to return to the city once more. They were murdered and driven out and persecuted by the Christians for Basically 80 years uh, ever since the fall of Jerusalem. But a small contingent did eventually resettle in the city. So then the third crusade started. So I'm not going to spend too much time on this. But Christian Europe uh, was horrified by the news that Jerusalem had fallen back under Saladin's control. Or I guess more specifically they were upset that it was under Muslim control. In fact, the Pope at the time, after he heard about this, the news that Jerusalem had fallen, literally died of a heart attack. (laughs) And his very last words were, holy war. Basically saying, like, we're starting a crusade pronto. Which is funny because Saladin was on the other side saying, holy war. (laughs) (laughs) Except he said jihad. Yes. Oh, another parallel throughout history. Wow. So uh, the Europeans then launched what was known as the Third Crusade, led by Richard I of England, also known as Richard the Lionheart, uh, as well as Frederick Barbarossa. But if you remember, Frederick Barbarossa actually never made it. Uh, He insisted on traveling by land with his huge, huge army because he was too afraid to go on the sea. And ironically... He died in a river. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> so he made it just a huge point like that he can't go by the sea. It was either... So I saw sources saying that it's either his force was too big for any amount of ships or that he was just afraid to sail. And he eventually just died in a river because he jumped in with a full suit of armor on <laughs> So this guy was like, everyone else was just like, come on, we're going to take these ships. And he's like, come on, vamanos. (laughs) And then just went over the land. No, we're taking the long way. 
taking the scenic route. Right. And if you remember our spirit, think was gonna happen when he jumped. Cannon, but also floats over small rocks. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it'll help me float. Oh man! Uh, In eleven eighty nine, King Richard's forces attacked and took over Acre, in what is now northern Israel, and did the European thing of massacring three thousand Muslim. Men, women, and children who had been taken prisoner. In retaliation, Saladin then executed every Christian soldier his troops encountered for the next two weeks. So, starting right back up where we were. Warranted. Richard's army defeated Saladin at the Battle of Arsuf. And this this battle was pretty interesting. It was basically held in one of the only parts of the area that was pretty much a jungle. And the way that the description of the battle went, like, it kind of gave me, not, of course, entirely, but just those descriptions of, like, Vietnam, where Saladin's forces hid in the bushes and waited for the Christians to You're come. You're in the bushes! And then, <laughs> and then Saladin basically just kind of surprise attacked them. Uh, but, of course, it didn't turn out, just because Richard was a lot better at uh, logistics than previous Europeans, so he made sure to always be supplied so like his army wasn't just dying of like thirst and and all that stuff hey you didn't dig your foxhole deep enough your spear's still sticking out (laughs) (laughs) uh richard then moved toward the city of ascalon but saladin ordered the city emptied and destroyed to the dismay of richard or excuse me as the dismayed richard uh, directed his army to march away saladin then launched another surprise attack on him either capturing or killing, and then selling into slavery most of the European force. Richard would then try to take uh, Jerusalem, but he had only 50 knights and 2,000 foot soldiers, so naturally he did not fare well. Saladin and Richard the Lionheart, like we mentioned before, grew to respect one another quite a bit, and even famously, when Richard's horse died at the Battle of Arsuf, uh, Saladin sent him a replacement mount. And in 1192, the two agreed to the Treaty of Ramla, which provided that the Muslims would retain control of Jerusalem and the surrounding Holy Land, but Christian pilgrims would have access to the city. The Crusader kingdoms were then reduced to a thin sliver of land along the Mediterranean coast, and Saladin had essentially defended the Holy Land from the Third Crusade. It was funny, because I I don't remember what source it was. It might have been the Biographics video, but... They they said it was like very likely that Saladin and King Richard like never actually physically met each other. Yes, yeah, so. I saw that as well. Um, but they still had like great respect, and even during this treaty negotiation, they just used envoys. Yeah, as well. So, yeah, it's just very cool how much Saladin's reputation, almost like we mentioned a couple times today, just preceded him, and even I mean, he was shown as a obviously that Muslim hero, but gained a ton of respect in Europe as well. Don't be a dick. That is true. Don't massacre everyone. It helps. Richard the Lionheart would leave the Holy Land in early 1193. And then a short time later, on March 4th, 1193, Saladin died of an unknown fever in his capital at Damascus. However, and this is kind of my favorite part, knowing that his time was short, he donated all of his wealth to the poor and actually had no money left even for a funeral for himself. 
He was then buried in a simple mausoleum outside of the Umayyad Mosque in Damascus. And this is where the, like, the thing about him and his wife having a good relationship probably comes in because they said that uh, they didn't tell his wa- or didn't tell him that his wife had died before him because he was already so sick. Mm-hmm. So they're like, well, he's going to die if we tell him that his wife that he loves just passed away before he's going to. So right. They were like, maybe we could save his life by not telling him about his wife until if he does get better, you know? It's like when he died, he's up in the afterlife. He's like, honey, what are you doing here? I thought I was waiting for me. (laughs) Oh, man. But that concludes the story of Saladin, or what I should say, his original name, because Saladin is technically like the Western name for him. That ends the life of Salah al-Din Yusuf ibn Ayyub. That's a wrap. What a trip. What a trip. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I definitely wanted to cover him. He's a very interesting man. Yeah. We don't really talk about too much. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, it's another topic that you bring up that I had no idea about. So, You're welcome. Does show how you can unite people with... Uh, behind quality leadership oh yeah yeah because i mean uniting an entire middle eastern front underneath one banner that had been fighting with each other for literal decades yeah after you just pretty much inherited the kingdom of egypt (laughs) like it's pretty impressive yeah it's a lot to take in a lot to do it also shows that keeping around good people to help you is a good idea because otherwise you wouldn't have gotten anywhere keep your circle small I don't really know how you sleep after being having an attempted assassination on your life like three times. Like when do you go to bed? Also, I, w- I feel like assassinations would have been way easier back then. So how good oh, yeah. are they at their job? Yeah. Like, <laughs> That's like why you- I say his bodyguards must have been just like elite because they they saved his life like three times. Yeah. <laughs> I would definitely need a nightlight if I was going after <laughs> a this. Just light. a night torch. Yes, yeah. like someone actually needs to be like like with a sword, like sleeping. Oh, yeah, I'm sure there was, like, plenty of people surrounding him. But cool story for sure. Yeah, definitely, definitely wanted to cover him. And, yeah. What do you think, Mark? I think he was rad. (laughs) He was a rad dude. He was. Yeah, I like his, he made a statement, like, right before he died, somebody talked about something about money or, like, having enough for him to be buried or whatever. And he's just like, Money, something like money never ha- helped you in the afterlife, or somebody who saved money like right, never right. was better off, or something like mm-hmm. that. So, and all the Egyptians are looking at the pyramids like, oh, oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's pretty awesome. All of the gold and stuff inside of them, <laughs> right? Like we, <laughs> we always talk about just, or you see it, it's like Jeff Bezos just flew to the moon or whatever. <laughs> it's just the same thing, like with the pharaohs in Egypt. It's like, oh, they were kind of on some shit. <laughs> I can take all my stuff to the afterlife with me? Yeah. I also think he was just a character. Like, he hired the two people that document his life at one point. I can just see him, like, laying down on a couch. Yeah. Like, Get your pen ready. I got yeah. a lot to say. I got you some know. stories. Yeah. Well, and that's why people sometimes say, oh, he probably wasn't as good of a guy as he says he was just because he had people write for him. So he's like, they he could have dictated to him. It's like, you do know that there's, like, millions of people that like were under him that still say he was a great guy right yeah yeah. like all accounts pretty much yeah and i mean if 
the Crusaders are saying that you're a pretty good guy, then I think you're good. Right. But uh, yeah, hope you all hope you all enjoyed it, and uh, you can give us a follow on our social media channels. You can find us on Twitter at gems underscore history. You can find Jacob at Jacob from Wisco, Mark at Mark underscore sign B, and then myself at Wadevskis. And then you can find us on Instagram at gems underscore of underscore history underscore podcast. And then finally on the old tickety talk at gems of history pod. So give us a follow, give us a like, like, rate, and subscribe. Yes. Give us hugs and kisses and well wishes. Five stars and Apple Podcasts. Get, hugs get, and kisses and well wishes. <laughs> get us the 10, 10 five-star reviews, and then we'll give the 10th person a high five. Yes. Uh, you can also reach out to us at uh, gemsofhistorypodcast at gmail.com. If there's anything you want to tell us there, uh, send us some stories. Send us your listener stories if you want to be featured on upcoming episodes. I don't know when we're going to do one of those again, but we'll keep them in the backlog. So otherwise, if you have stories related to something we talk about, like I know we talked about Leo Major a couple weeks ago, and mm-hmm. that was, that's still relatively recent. So if you have a story related to that or anything we talk about, just send it on in. Love to read them. But that's all we got for you guys this week. Everyone have a safe and happy week this week, and we will talk to you later.